But anyway, from 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning with verse 9. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, Abel-Maholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and all the mouths that have not kissed him. So he set out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what, I, what have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them. Using the equipment for the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he sat out and followed Elijah and became his servant. This is the word of God for the people of God. Oh, when we last saw the prophet Elijah, he was a burned out fugitive struggling to be a pilgrim on his way to Horeb, the Mount of God. Well, I've got good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is Elijah made it to Horeb. The bad news is that he arrived there and hid himself in a dark, damp cave, hiding out from all that was going on, a dark, damp cave, and I'm just thinking it was probably full of creepy spiders and slimy snakes. I don't know about Elijah. I would rather face the evil queen Jezebel than to climb into a cave full of spiders any day, any day. And so he came to a cave and he lodged there. One commentator says that Elijah was in the cave mood or the cave mode. Both his mind and his heart had gone into hiding. He was free from Ahab, free from Jezebel for a while, or at least that's what he thought. But he was a prisoner of himself. He had shut the sunlight out of his mind. He had drawn the shutters of his heart. When the doors slam against us, we are prone sometimes, aren't we, to draw into ourselves and lock our hearts against others, and distrust begets distrust. Elizabeth Scoglin, 
was writing in a book called Safety Zones. And she had this to say about caves. She said, caves and secret places in general are captivating to children and captivating to the child that's in all of us adults. C.S. Lewis appeals to this quality in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know many of you have read that. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book in that series. The Chronicles of Narnia, where the initial entry into another dimension comes by means of exploring an old wardrobe. And if you haven't read the book or seen one of the movies, let me recommend that. And this wardrobe is so big that a child can enter into it. And she said, it's interesting to me that the children in Lewis's books find the wardrobe during a time of stress. They are staying with a professor out in the country, out from London, and the bombing and the air raids are happening in London, and it's a stressful, frightful time. And it's as though this enchanting wardrobe with its cave-like interior filled with long fur coats and smelling like mothballs provides a diversion, a safety zone during this time of external stress. A child's fascination with secret places and caves is tied into that impulse to run for cover, to pull the blankets up over one's head when one is afraid. Caves and cave-like places represent being hidden and safe and protected. And when we're grown up, we're vulnerable. We're embarrassed sometimes because we are fragile and vulnerable. And I suspect that most of us still have a secret desire for a cave or a cave-like place from time to time, somewhere we can go and hide out and, and get away from things. Um, I know that even cave, caves with their rocks and jagged edges can be dangerous kind of places, but they can provide protection and can uh, save us from some real dangers. And I believe she's right. We all have a desire to escape those harsh realities of life. And I know I have an imaginary cave that I go to sometimes when things are stressful or difficult. It's sort of a log cabin at the end of a very long road on the edge of a hardwood forest. And it's late October and the air outside is fresh and crisp. And the sky is a little gray and there's a small fire in the open fireplace on the opposite wall from a picture window. My lazy boy sits in front of this window in this high ceiling, dark wood paneled room. And there's a table beside it, an antique table with an old lamp that has been wired for electricity and a copy of a novel and a cup of black coffee and a plate full of the amazing cookies like some of you bring by the office from time to time, and uh, we always appreciate that. But staring out the window, I can't help but notice the leaf-strewn lawn as it slopes down toward a crystal clear lake and a mountain range beyond that with really no beginning and, and no ending. And I don't journey to my cave real often, but when I do, I cannot afford the luxury of staying there for long. And when I return from that cave, I usually feel better. We need those places. I do. Maybe you do too. Elizabeth Scoglin also wrote that during the closing months of World War II, after he had been catapulted into the presidency by the death of President Roosevelt, Harry Truman was asked how he handled that inordinate stress and responsibility that was placed upon him. According to an article that appeared years ago in Reader's Digest, Truman's words were like this. He said, I have found a foxhole or a cave in my mind. And just as a soldier, he said, retreats to a foxhole for protection, 
He said, I periodically retire into my own mental foxhole where nothing can bother me. So a cave, while it can be depicted by physical structures or maybe it's a natural cave in the side of a mountain, it's actually an attitude of the heart and mind. And if that be true, then there is nowhere, no literal cave where we can go to get away from it all. Folks talk about going to the beach so they can get away from it all. But it all is really in here and in here. And we often take it with us wherever we go. We can't get away. I knew of an older couple in Atlanta, and I didn't say this earlier, but some of my kinfolk are here and they know them too. They were our grandparents. And their home in their latter years became a cave of sort. They very seldom ventured outside once in a while to take a trash container to the curb, but even later they couldn't do that, or to bring in the mail off the front porch. And everything they needed to survive was brought in by family and friends. They were lonely and they were frightened. And I don't mean this in a critical, derogatory way, but these folks were existing with what might be called a cave person mentality. And the real cave is not made of bricks and mortar and wood and stone. It's in here and it's up here. It's a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. Consider this question for a moment. Can a sanctuary become a cave? And a better way of phrasing that question might be, can those of us who gather on a regular basis in a designated place of worship, in a beautiful sanctuary like this, can we ever be referred to as cave folks? Uh, one definition of the word sanctuary is a place of refuge. And isn't that what a cave is? Isn't that what the cave was for Elijah, a place of refuge? God's people need times apart from the busyness and the busyness and the business of the world, but if that hiding place becomes cave-like, then, then we might have an issue. We need a place where we can receive inspiration and encouragement and hopefully receive our marching orders from the Holy Spirit. But when the place becomes a place where we hide from Jezebel and those like her, I believe we've got a problem. We've got to do things and confront things beyond these walls. Cave person Christians are only looking for security. And they're only looking to have their needs met. And they show little or no interest in engaging a world that God loves so much God gave an only son. There's nothing wrong with wanting security and protection. There's nothing wrong with having our needs met. There's nothing wrong with a cave unless there are no handles or knobs on the doors and we go there and fail to come out and confront those things all around us that threaten to divide and destroy us. And there he came to a cave and he lodged there. Caves can be very roomy. But caves can also be cramped, difficult places in which to maneuver. And I believe those who explore caves are called spelunkers. And I've never been much for going into those real kind of caves because the spots are tight. And it's hard to get through and you feel closed in. And if you have any claustrophobic tendencies at all, and I do, then that kind of cave is, is a, scary, a scary kind of place. Elijah came to a cave and he lodged there. And that was different from the way the children of Israel 
perceive things because they enjoyed wide open spaces, expanded spaces, enhanced spaces. The psalmist in Psalm, I believe it's 18, he brought me forth into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. In another place in the Psalms, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place, not wanting to be hemmed in and confined. I was in need of a larger setting. And a larger setting needs proper landscaping. And sometimes that can be brought about by engaging or changing the physical outlook of things around us. There was a wise old minister, and every year, once a year, he preached a sermon on astronomy. And when the youthful assistant pastor asked him, well, why in the world do you do that? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Why do you preach on astronomy? a subject that's so far removed from our daily life. Why do you do that? And the pastor replied, of course it's of no use at all, but it greatly expands my idea of God. Elijah needed an enlargement of his spirit as well as his physical outlook and his surroundings. He had slumped into a smallness of souls and he was hurting himself with his vindictive attitude. Cavism will do that to us. Upset by the injustices inflicted upon him, Elijah was vowing vengeance. He was going to get even. A poet named Hyen was only half joking when, in speaking of his own happiness, he wrote these words. And it starts off pretty good. He said, My wishes are a humble dwelling with a thatched roof, a good bed, Good food, flowers at my windows, and some fine tall trees before my door. And if the good God wants to make me completely happy, he will give me the joy of seeing six or seven of my enemies hanging from those trees. That's a terrible attitude, isn't it? That vindictive attitude, nurturing, that, that self-pity kind of thing. Elijah had nursed his depression and nursed his vindictiveness, and it had grown into a monster, a monster of rage and a monster of self-pity. And there he came to a cave and he lodged there. What was left for Elijah when all seemed lost more than he ever dreamed? The future that Elijah dreaded was filled with promise and filled with hope. God was shrugging off Elijah's complaints and giving Elijah more to do. What was left for Elijah when all seemed lost? Plenty, plenty, plenty. Too much to describe. For one thing, there were new rulers to anoint. God had come to the cave and asked him, what are you doing here? And Elijah stumbled through some kind of answer, some kind of pitiful excuse, and God was obviously not impressed. And God said, go stand out on the mountain before the Lord. And he did. And a strong wind tore through the place. A wind that was splitting rocks, a wind even more powerful than the tornado that rocked our area not long ago. But God was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and the foundations of the world shook, and God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, a roaring fire, and God was not in the fire. And then after the fire, a still, small voice, the sound of sheer silence. Elijah came and stood at the entrance of the cave and God asked him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah didn't know what to say. 
And he gave an answer that was equally as unimpressive as his first answer. And God said, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you return, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. In other words, Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel will not always be on the throne of Israel. Not forever. No matter how difficult things are right now, things can and things will change. They always do. I used to work with a woman in the grocery store. I worked for colonial stores. It became Big Star later for six years while I was going through school. And uh, her name was Willie Mae Harris. And in those six years there, I worked for about that many different managers. And every time I got a new manager, I'd wait a few days. And then I'd wander over to Willie Mae's register and ask her, what do you think about the new boss? And she would always always tell me something about him that she just didn't like. And when I asked her what she was going to do about it, her usual reply was, nothing. I'm, I'm not studying any new boss. I've been around here a long time. I've seen them come and I've seen them go. And when this one is gone, I'll still be here. Elijah, there are new rulers to anoint. There are new folk coming along. What was left for Elijah when all seemed lost for one thing, new rulers to anoint? Jezebel didn't even have to have a one-year contract. God was raising up some new leaders for the children of Israel. What was left for Elijah when all seemed lost? For another thing, there was another prophet to anoint, Elisha, Elijah's successor. And what if Jezebel did manage to get up with, catch up with Elijah and destroy him? God's work would still go on because Elisha had been chosen. There was someone else to pick up the ball and run with it. Things would continue and God's work would be done. What was left for Elijah? A new successor already been chosen? And this is an awful story, but I almost have to tell it because this reminds me of the story. And you've heard a similar story, I'm sure. There was a couple, and they were in bed one night. They were talking, and uh, she said to him, Honey, if I die before you, I want your next wife to wear my clothes. He said, Oh, that's terrible. I don't want to think about that. No, no, no. Let's don't talk about that. And... Uh, she said, honey, if I die before you, I want your next wife to move into this house, to share this room, to share your life. And he said, no, I just don't want to think about that. Please quit bringing this up. She said, one more thing, and if I should die before you, I want your next wife to drive my car. And he shook his head and said, that won't work. She can't drive a stick shift. <laughs> there are always successors waiting in the wings. Maybe not. In that, maybe not in. <laughs> maybe not in that way. But but uh, if Elijah didn't make it, Elisha was right there, and things would continue. So what was left for Elijah when all seemed lost? For one thing, new rulers to anoint, a change for the better. And for another thing, a successor had been chosen. The prophetic ministry would continue. What else was left for Elijah when everything seemed lost and it was ready to just cash it all in? 
And he was saying things like, I, even I only am left. No one else cares, God, about what you want done in this world. Nobody cares. I'm the only one. And God, again, got tired of that whining. And he told Elijah, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and all the lips that have not kissed him, 7,000 people. Elijah thought he was in this thing by himself. And sometimes we feel that way as a church and sometimes as individuals that nobody else cares about the right and the wrong and the hurts in this world. And Elijah was in that moment of self-pity and God said, time out, Elijah. Didn't you notice there's 7,000 folk over here? who love me and worship me and serve me and want to do what's right in this world. You're not in this thing by yourself. I've got a lot of folks with many gifts and graces who are ready to step up and to work with you and to serve with you and with Elisha and all those who will come after you. He believed, Elijah did, that he alone could confront Jezebel and all of her wickedness. But no, 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 there were so many others. He was suffering from terminal aloneness. And God said, wait a minute. <laughs> Look at this crowd over here. They're all with you. They're all with me. So what is left for us when all seems lost? There are always new rulers to anoint. No matter how difficult things might seem, things always change. What's left when all seems lost? There are those appointed to succeed us, to carry on with God's work in this world that God loves so much? What is left when all seems lost? More folks than we could count in a day who share our faith and who will stand with us to do what is just and what is right and what is graceful in this world. What's left when all seems lost? More than we ever dreamed. The cave is not our only option. There's always the rock. What a tremendous thing to know when all else seems lost. To quote the old gospel hymn, oh then to the rock let me fly. To the rock that is higher than I, oh then to the rock let me fly. To the rock that is higher than I. A permanent rock, a strong rock, the rock of ages, even Jesus the Christ for us now and always. Amen.